Hi everyone and welcome back to The Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I talk to some amazing disabled people and some amazing allies of the disabled community. Today I am talking to the wonderful Alan Benson. You probably have heard of Alan if you are on disability social media, particularly on Twitter. He is an absolute force to be reckoned with in the campaigning world and particularly on accessible transport for disabled people. I have always bumped into Alan at various events, but never had a proper chat. So I'm very excited to jump into this conversation. They are not going to manhandle me against my will. You know, that gets into assault. So I'm trying to sit there and say, no, that's not the way it's going to happen. This is the way we're going to do it. I'm really uncomfortable about sharing this because it makes it sound as though I'm victim blaming. It makes it sound as though I'm saying, you can go wrong to our fault. And I am absolutely not. It is definitely not our fault. But unfortunately, until things get fixed, it is our problem. One of the things that I guess is one of my superpowers is that ability to just breathe, remain calm, and get frustrated and angry later. Well, Alan, thank you so, so much for joining us on The Wheelchair Activist. I say this a lot in the podcast, um, but I feel that I know you so much more from social media than from our, I think we've met a couple of times in passing at various events, but it's nice to be able to talk to you properly today. It's really nice of you to invite me. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we've we've never actually um, had a decent conversation. So this will be very interesting. I'm really looking forward to it. Could you tell our wonderful listeners a little bit about you and what you do? So I... This is always one of those really hard questions because um, there are so many different hats that I wear. Um, it can be sometimes difficult to know when I go into a room which hat I'm wearing. So I guess the thing that I'm most known for is social media, particularly Twitter. Um, a rather out-of-date blog that's still up there. Um, I also um, I'm chair and co-chair of Transport Brawl, which is the only charity in the UK that campaigns exclusively for the rights of disabled and older people to travel uh, around. Um, I am a trustee at a local independent living charity in Richmond, where I live. Uh, I'm co-chair of uh, London Travel Watch, which is the passenger transport body in London. Um, And I co-chair the DFT group uh, that oversees 
inclusive transport strategy. Um, I think that's it. I think that's the little list. Those are a great many hats that you wear, but all amazingly impressive. Thank you. I think uh, they all feel important to me. Um, they're all things that, mm-hmm. that I've started doing and, and had the opportunity to, I know it sounds very cheesy, but make a difference. And I think that's what a lot of, certainly listening to your to your podcasts, and they've just been, just been amazing to listen to. The common thread is that people just want to make things better. And I think that's where I'm coming at it from. That is certainly true. I think no matter what area the various guests are from, you know, whether that's medicine or politics or, you know, whatever it might be, I think, as you said, the theme is really to make things better, but also to make sure that disabled people don't face the same barriers that we've faced. And I know that that's where my career really started, was that I didn't want someone else at my university to be treated the same way that I did. And I know that we sort of can synonymize you a little bit with transport, because like you said, those are sort of the things that you are the most known for. But why in particular is that so important to you? So this comes down to really a bit about my history. And I've, in all the things that I've done, been able to get to work and been able to go out in the evening, being able to go to the pub, being able to go on holiday. Transport is at the heart of all of that. So before I even realised that transport was important to me, it was already embedded in in my life. Um, And it comes back so I think as often happens, we have these transitional, these pivotal moments in our lives where we can look back and go, that's the that's the point that made a difference. Um and mine was around the Olympics. Um I was trying to get I just moved to London uh, to work and was using the trains and kept getting left. You know, as we are, as so many people, so many people have done. Um, and Channel 4 were doing a, a No Go Britain series about the experience of disabled people around the Olympics. And I got sucked into that. And that was what triggered me. That was the that was the point. So I can I can pinpoint a particular incident on a particular train that was the start of my journey, my my campaigning journey. Um, it certainly wasn't the start of my 
commuting journey that day. What was your career prior to campaigning? So before I, I trained as an economist. So that's what all of my academic training was in. And my interest was IT. So I'm an engineer by trade. And I spent the first 25 years of my my career working mostly in academia, building and managing large IT systems. So IT systems that supported 30,000, 40,000 users, supported you know, those student record systems and running the teams that got built and managed those. Um, and it, I can, the interesting thing was almost I've got two lives. So during that career, I didn't know any disabled people. I was the only disabled person in those environments. And it was all about that that thing that we all know so well, which is you've got to try harder to succeed. Now, the world is hostile and we've got to fight it. We've got to, we've got to overcome it. Um, it wasn't until I moved to London and got involved in that, that campaign, that campaigning, and got to know some disabled people, and they taught me the social model. That was like a transition. That was like, oh, I just misunderstood entirely mm. the right approach. It's not about, and it, it becomes about equality, it becomes about rights. It doesn't, it's not about fighting the system. It's about making the system fairer. Um, so, yeah, that was my, that's kind of my transition, a, a pre-social model and a post-social model. I always find it so interesting how many disabled people identify with that in that I think we all grow up understanding the medical model when we're getting diagnosed or learning about, you know, support at school or education, whatever it might be. And then there's a moment for so many of us where it sort of clicks and when the social model really becomes apparent and when you sort of realize that it's without these barriers, you would be doing X, Y, and Z, you know, same as your non-disabled peers and your non-disabled colleagues. And it's, I always find it so interesting what people's turning point or what that moment was for them. And I wish I didn't identify with yours so much around the being left on a train because it, 
as someone who used to commute myself, you know, yes, I've worked in disability for the you know for so long now. It still never ceased to amaze me that the hardest part of my day was actually the two hour commute. It wasn't the work when I got there. Yeah. I don't I still find it difficult to look back and think about when we talk about internalized cannibalism quite a lot. I look back and I was part of the problem almost. You know, the, the whole attitude. I remember, you know, I don't often talk about myself, and I'm not sure, but this is this may be a bit too revealing. I remember when I was at school, um, and this was back in the early 80s, uh, I was in a large mainstream high school, um, and it was on a campus, and there was a special school. And that was what it was called, a special school um, over in the corner. And you know, we could all see it out in the classroom windows, but nobody talked about it. It was it was there, but but invisible. Um, and it's that that exclusion, that separation. But I didn't realize, I didn't recognize at the time. But looking back now, you just think, oh wow, how how was that? How was that allowed? How is that allowed? How do we how do we tackle that? How do we how do we prevent that? that's not the way we can build a, a decent, equal, fair society. I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I too was in mainstream education, um, but this was obviously in the States um, where I lived till I was 16. And I found that even for pupils who weren't like me, but who did need educational type of support, Still having them in the classrooms and sort of in our canteen or, you know, in those mainstream spaces just made that generation so comfortable with disability because it wasn't shut away, because it was part of our everyday that then, I I mean, I hope that the people who I went to school with and who I grew up with will have a very different attitude towards disability than they would have if they never saw it till they were an adult. So I mean, I mean, I'm a, I'm a white man, middle-aged, I'm, I'm a certain type. Um, and my, my history goes back to the 70s, the early 80s. One of the things that I find really encouraging looking around at the, the generations of campaigners and activists is the expectations that we have have changed. So my generation who you know, we were able 
to travel on trains if we were lucky. But often it meant, yeah, if not stocking guardrails, then it was certainly a pretty poor experience. And, mm. and to a certain extent, we felt lucky to be able to get on trains. We couldn't get on buses. We were restricted in the things that, that we can do. The modern generation, like the generation that was come after me, they got an expectation that they should be able to access services, access cinema. I remember being told that I was a fire hazard in a cinema. The modern generation would be quite rightly outraged when that happens, and it still does sometimes. But I think the, the thing that I find mm. encouraging is our, our expectations of society are improving, and I hope what society is delivering and offering is improving. But sometimes it can feel as though it's not. And that's a big That's hard work. I was going to ask you, but you kind of alluded to it, but do you feel that the generations that have come after you, and you mentioned that they quite rightly agree, expect things to be better, they quite rightly expect not to be told that they're a fire hazard, for example. So is that something that you're pleased it's happening or is it I don't want to say resentful because I think that's the wrong word but I know that you know generations that have come before can sort of look and say you know you don't realize how good you have it now because of the work that I put in when I wasn't allowed to do it sort of which camp would you say you sit in of those I am thrilled that the present generation of much higher expectations. And I hope that the generations to come will have even higher expectations. You know, this is one of those standing on the shoulders of giants things. You know, I look at the people that paved that change for me, and I want to pave the change or others. Um, you know, as I said, I am a middle-aged, white, middle-class, you know, I'm the archetypal privileged you know, British man. Um, the, only, the only less privileged bit that, that I've got is is the disability uh, card. I'm a wheelchair user. Um, but that I can use as, as a weapon. Um, and I think that I need to use the privilege that I've got, the, the tools that I've got, to 
and hence the cause. You know, we've all got to play to our strengths. Um, you know, I've got some great stories of, uh, like for example, I went to an interview many, many years ago, and they'd clearly done the how to interview in an aggressive way course. So they set up a room where the interviewers were sitting in a semicircle around a lower chair, and very mastermind-like, and even gone on this was I, I almost laughed when I walked in. They'd even put the interviewee chair on a rubber lift. Absolutely. But I walked in in the wheelchair, of course, and didn't fit into their into their um, their scheme of things. Suddenly, they weren't centered around the interviewee. Interviewee for me was off center in a wheelchair. I was higher than they were. It completely threw them. And I, that's always been my, my technique, I think, to take what some people would consider a disadvantage and try and twist it into a strength. That's fascinating how they set up the room with such precision to create that power dynamic and how you would imagine and I know a lot of people can agree with this, but like when you are disabled, you can feel that power imbalance in every single situation. And that power balance is against you, but you managed to take some of that back, you know, un, sort of unplanned, of course, but that it ended up throwing them. And I think it's a little bit too the disabled person's strength in a way to expect that discomfort, perhaps. I mean, I don't know. I I don't know if that's the right way of sort of describing it. But if you're someone who has not shared your disability on a job application or anything like that, and you rock up to an interview and they are quite visibly thrown that you're disabled you can sort of think i have expected this and i'm the one who's prepared in this situation always be prepared to knock people off their of their expectations um i have a a mantra um that i share particularly with um with people that are assisting me um and I often use it around, you know, we come across this all the time, particularly when we're flying. You know, we are in that, that junior position. You know, everybody around us in the aircraft has, is in a position of power. They're in a position of authority because they're the ones that are in charge. You know, they've got their... They've got the final say about what, what, what rules exist. And, but 
my approach is, well, they might be in charge, but I'm in control. They can't make me do anything uh-huh. I don't want to do. I don't have to get angry about it. I don't have to get shitty about it. Excuse my language. Um, it's fine. Go ahead. Um, they are not going to manhandle me against my will. You know, that gets into assault. So I'm trying to sit there and say, no, that's not the way it's going to happen. This is the way we're going to do it. And partly, and this comes back to what I was saying about being a white, middle-aged, middle-class man. That gives me a certain authority that others won't have. But you need to identify mm. what are your strengths, where is your control in the situation, and play to it. That's a fascinating example. And I love that analogy though about the control and all of that. And I think, you know, just going off of my trip to the States last week, I know that there are, and particularly right now when we're recording this, which is in middle of September, but in the past month, I would say there have been a lot of news stories about wheelchair users in particular whose wheelchair wasn't there to meet them or were who who were left in an aisle chair or, you know, all of those things when they're traveling by plane. And I got, a, I sort of psyched myself out a little bit before I went to the States. And I remember telling my dad who I was traveling with that I'm not going to agree to get off of the plane until my wheelchair is there at the aircraft door. And I was really nervous about that, I have to say, because I know that they will want to get everyone off, start cleaning the planes, they can turn it around and use it again. But I heard sort of exactly what you said, that they can't move me without my consent. And although I was really nervous, I did think I have to stand my ground on this because I know that it puts pressure on them to do what I need and what I deserve. You know, I deserve to go straight into my wheelchair. I don't deserve to be on a little aisle chair strapped into it like a straight jacket for hours, which I know a lot of people have done. So, you know, I, that example really resonates. That, that's exactly right. I've been in exactly that same, that same position. Um, I, mean, I mean, none of this is about, we shouldn't need to do this. Exactly. You know, these, these systems should be set up to support us in the same way that they're set up to support the 80% of other travellers. But unfortunately, at the moment, they're not. So where we can, we need to identify where are our strengths? Where is our ability? 
if we're on the plane, then we have that, that power. And they need to do what they can to get us off the plane to meet. They need to do, they need to carry out what we're asking them to do to get us off the plane. The minute that we're in that aisle chair and off the plane, we lose control of that situation. Could not agree more. I'm really uncomfortable about sharing this because it makes it sound as though I'm victim blaming. It makes it sound as though I'm saying, if it goes wrong, it's our fault. And I am absolutely not. It is definitely not our fault. But unfortunately, until things get fixed, it is our problem. I really agree with that. I think I completely get what you mean about Nick not wanting to come across as victim blaming. And I really understand that. I think as I, because I really do understand in that example that we were just talking about, I knew that I was going to be put in a situation that I didn't want to be in and that I quite frankly, don't deserve to be in, you know, in a little aisle chair or in one of those golf cart buggy things or, you know, whatever it is that they would have wanted to put me in from getting off the plane and into my wheelchair. And I knew that I had to be a bit bullshit is the wrong word because I it's so difficult to pick the right word for it, firm. I suppose is the right word. I knew that I had to be firm and be a bit demanding because that was what I needed, but I felt uncomfortable about having to do it. And I think the reason why I said that I told my dad that was because he is a non-disabled white man who is middle aged as well. He'll be thrilled with that um, description, but, um, that I needed his backing because, as we all know, as wheelchair users, I think disabled people for stop, but particularly for disabled people who travel with a PA, carer, whatever you want to call it, we do get talked around an awful lot. And it did happen. You know, the flight attendants and the assistant staff spoke to my dad and asked about the aisle chair and about transferring me that didn't ask me and when they did I was very pleasantly surprised so I agree with what you said that it shouldn't be a situation that we're in but for right now we are so it does make it our problem I mean it's not just things it's not just those um those big events like flying it, the same is true for the routine things like like train travel. If you are, if you think you're going to get left on a train, don't be afraid to call the the assistance uh, alarm. Don't be afraid to stop the train. Drivers don't want to 
to take us further than we intended to go, any more than we want to know that. They would much rather that we got something done about it. Yeah, I once had a completely empty train, bar me and my carer, have to go back two stops because they didn't get me off at the right stop. And I thought, what a colossal waste of everyone's time and money this is. Because some because the assistance wasn't there. And that's not my problem. I mean, it was my problem in the sense that it was also wasting my time. But yeah, I, I agree that drivers don't want to, you know, they don't want to be inconvenienced any more than we do. But I suppose my question for you is in either a situation on a plane or a train or even just because uh, the other example I was thinking of is when you go to even a doctor's appointment and you have to check in at the desk if you have a visible disability like I do they'll ask my carer you know, or they'll look at my carer instead of me when I'm checking in at the desk and I thought well, they don't know what my birthday is. You know, they might, you know, or whatever the other information is that you have to say to to check in. And just how wrong it is that they're not speaking to me, the patient. But what is your advice for disabled people who feel intimidated by that? And I think by that, I mean that, that making a fuss and that presumption that it is making a fuss rather than that it's making a fuss rather than just standing up for yourself which is by no means a small thing but what is your advice i am very typically british i hate making a fuss i hate an argument i hate all of that all of that um who are and polar. I would much rather go for a quiet life. Um, the other issue that I've got, and you can probably tell, my voice is not always strong. So if I'm in a noisy environment, particularly things like train stations, people can't hear me. It takes a certain experience to understand what I'm trying to say. So I get that. There's that thing, as you said, people will talk to the person that I'm with, whether that's my wife, a friend, or um, And if they talk to me, they often can't understand me anyway. So it's you know, my wife that that ends up replying for me. So that, that almost reinforces that prejudice that they've got about talking to us. Um, it's really hard. Um, we're trying to... We're trying to change years of ingrained societal attitudes. Um, I think the only advice that I've got, and it, 
again, I don't want this to sound like victim blaming because it absolutely isn't. But the only solution I found is to remain calm, remain insistent, try and swallow your frustration, swallow your anger. Um, I absolutely get just, just like everybody else. By the time I get to these situations, I've already had a lousy day. You know, I probably had a nightmare getting up and getting ready and getting out of the house. I probably convinced left by a bus or a taxi or a train. You know, I've been following along incredibly uneven, uncomfortable patients. I'm in a really bad mood when I get there. But shouting and getting angry at people, most people can't handle anger from another person they react. And if it escalates, then it doesn't. We're not getting anywhere. We're not getting getting to a solution. Um, one of the things that I guess is one of my superpowers is that ability to just breathe, remain calm, try and ignore it, and get frustrated and angry later. Um, we're not in a world that's fair. We're not in a world that treats us equally. Um, often it doesn't treat us appropriately. Railing against that in the moment. It's not something we're going to solve really quickly. It's a really slow burn. No, it that it is. I'm not sure I'm actually giving any useful useful thoughts. It's just sort of philosophizing. I think that that's it's really good advice. And I'm sitting here thinking, wow, I wish I had a smidgen of his calm in those situations because I completely agree that it's not going to get anyone anywhere to get angry and to yell and I'm very guilty of doing that I call it getting my angry American voice on or my angry American hat um particularly when it you know I I have yelled at people and I it's not something I'm proud of. I'm much prouder of the situations where I've remained calm and being forceful, though, because I think that there's a difference between remaining calm and just saying, oh, okay, that's fine. And then there's being calm and standing your ground. And like you said, being insistent. And I think that's the angle to go for. That's the balance to strike and if anyone is listening to this like me and is thinking god i really don't do that i really do get where you're coming from but i do agree with you that it is important to try to get there i guess the best way to not shout at somebody 
is not legal to shout out loud. That's very true. I don't have the I don't have the voice to get angry. I can't shout at people. So I you know I I do the thing that I'm I work to my strengths. And I'm I'm really lucky in that I react well to stress. Stress empowers me. Stress gives me a drive. So I can channel that. So I use that to my, to my benefit. I guess that we know internally that we feel vulnerable in these situations. We know that we feel stressed. We know that we feel angry. But other people don't know how we're feeling. So I think one of the things that I do is almost put a mask on. Appear calm and use all of those, all of that anger, and channel it. Um, and don't reveal just how scary some of these situations are. Don't reveal how nervous I really am. You know, I'll, I'll deal with that internally later. Right now, I've got to focus on getting what, getting what I need. Um, I, I know I'm really lucky. I know I, I, I grew up with parents that brought me up to believe that there was nothing I wasn't entitled to or allowed to be. Now, if, if somebody was stopping me doing something, that was their problem, not mine. Um, and that's given me a, an armour and strength that I can use, both personally and in, and in, my, and in my campaign, um, and in, in making change. Um, now we all suffer, I think, from, from imposter syndrome. You, know, you walk into a room and you think, do I really deserve to be here? Am I really gonna? Am I gonna be able to contribute? Will people listen to me? Um, and it's part of that that mask to say, yeah, I'm I'm gonna put my foot in. Um, what 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 I've got to say is is valid. And I think we all need to, to have confidence in what we've got to say. And then after those scary moments, because I think you really hit the nail on the head there. You know, these are scary, very vulnerable situations that we are sometimes in. I mean, I, I'm sure that you've heard of my example, but on my second day of work at my first real job after uni um i faced discrimination from a taxi driver and the situation escalated 
and the police ended up having to be called. And in that situation, I was able to stay very calm um, and it ended up going to court and all of that stuff. I I mean, I was in the right. um, So I think I held on to that in that situation. But then after those situations, where it has been really scary, how do you process with that internally? And because I think I, I really agree with what you said about that mask. And there's a really good friend of mine. She was also in season one of the podcast, my non-disabled best friend growing up, who always used to say, fake it till you make it. So it's sort of like that. But then once you're in that safety, you're on your own, or you're with friends and family, how do you begin to process just the vast unfairness? I suppose the right word of it all. I think she's right. You know, often we feel as though the situations that we're in are unique to us. But she's right, fake it till you make it. If you look like you know what you're doing, and people believe you know what you're doing. Um, and something that I do a little bit of that I didn't mention earlier was coming across those those discrimination things, particularly around theatre or around restaurants. Um, I will resort to legal action. You know, I, I use the Equality Act. Um, there's a great uh, tool called a Disability Attitude Readjustment Tool, DART, um, which was written by Doug Pauly, which has lots of tools there to help you advocate in those situations where you've been discriminated against. But that's not without consequence. I do lie awake at night and agonising over either what I've got to do or the responses that I've had or the unfairness. It's not... I don't want to come across as... Oh, I just deal with it and move on. Because you don't. There are implications. There are there are consequences. And that's part of why what we face is so unfair. And I'm one of the things that drives me is to try and tackle that unfairness so that the people that come after me don't face as much of it. I think that that's so important. And I think just as you were sort of talking about different examples and you mentioned restaurants and theatres, I think, I don't know if you agree with this, but when I go about daily life as a physically disabled person so an electric wheelchair user i kind of expect to be treated a bit poorly on public transport but i think it's the moments like when you're 
planning to go out to dinner with a friend or you're planning to go see a show or sort of more of those leisure activities and you get a barrier, that almost hurts more or it stings more, whatever you want to call it, because it's trying to just, not that transport isn't going about your daily life, but it really is, but it's more about enjoying life i don't know if you would agree with that so one of the other things that i'm losing as i get older is my hearing um and going out to particularly restaurants with friends they i don't know why they insist on playing music Sometimes really loud. So with my voice, I can't shout over the music. With my increasingly poor hearing, I can't hear what people are saying. So you're sitting in a restaurant with friends, utterly isolated. You can't participate, can't join in the conversation. Can't hear what people are saying. And that, that's one of the things that I find hardest. It's entirely the environment that's making me isolated. And coming away from those, from what should be joyous nights out, I find that really, really hard. And I'm really sick of, you'll start the night and say to them, oh, can you turn the music down? And then, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. And it turns down. And then 15 minutes later, it creeps up. And then 15 minutes later, it's a bit higher. And of course, every time they turn the music up, people have to talk louder. So the noise levels go up. So by... 45 minutes into the meal, I might as well be at home on my own for all the interaction I get. And I find that really hard. I mean, it's, it really, to me, speaks to the social model of disability, that it is the environment and it's the barriers that we're in that disables us because it could be something as simple as turning off or at least turning down the music that makes it a more pleasant and very importantly barrier-free experience for you. And it's it's very frustrating. And I think, you know, for so many people, I mean, I know that for me in loud restaurants, sort of similar to what you were saying about train stations and your sort of ability to shout. I mean, don't get me wrong, I have a bit because I think all Americans are born with the ability to shout somewhat. But I think in very loud places, it is difficult when you have lower lung capacity to make yourself heard. And it just makes you feel really uncomfortable and you know, I haven't shared this really with 
anyone, but it's a big reason why I don't like or why I choose not to go for work drinks and things because it's with people that you don't know as well. And if it's in an atmosphere where they're going to struggle to hear you, it just becomes so awkward and so unenjoyable uh, that it's just easier to remove yourself from it. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Uh, I was trying this week uh, for a... um, I was trying this week to describe, sorry, to define disability. Um, And I kept coming back to all of the definitions somehow involved impairments and barriers around impairments. And to me, it's not, it's not more around, as you say, the barriers that society puts up. It's not about the individual's um, impairment or, or their, I'm not really describing this very well, um, but it's about the right to be in society without facing that that discrimination, that those things that exist that prevent us taking part. Um, and it's kind of turning on its head. All of the all of the descriptions that I could see were focused around the individual. And to me, is focused around society. Disability is a political issue. It's a rights issue. It's not an individual issue. Um, and I'm still trying to find the right words to, to, to use in a definition. But I know I've got the idea that, that I want to use. I think it's so difficult to describe disability as you you know said it's it's difficult because i can sort of see the merits in the different models but i think none of they almost aren't quite right but i really like that about society because as you sort of alluded to in one of your points earlier that you know 20% of us have some type of a disability so it really is society's issue rather than just our individual issues if that makes sense it does i've got a i've got a good friend with autism and i keep coming back to her experience of society. And it's particularly our neurodiverse um, siblings. The neurodiversity to me isn't an impairment so much as a different way of seeing the world, a different way of dealing with the world. And 
if the world doesn't fit, it's not their problem. It's the world that's at fault. Um, you know, if you have a different way of processing things that are going on around you, that doesn't make it wrong at all. It's just a different view. We all have a different way of both. I'm trying to be very careful here. But it's everyone has a very different perception or everyone has a different lens in which they see the world, yeah. Perception. That's the word that I'm looking for. Perception, thank you. Um, and uh, all of the definitions of disability seem to come up with the idea of impairment. And that doesn't, to me, encompass neurodiversity. It's like, well, it's not a good enough definition there. We need to cast the net wider. So before we wrap up, I've asked you about your advice to disabled people who find themselves in those difficult situations and how to deal with it afterwards. But do you have any other advice for other disabled people? It can be about anything, just something that you've learned along your journey that you wish someone had told you? I, I'm really bad at taking advice. So people who told me things, I would probably have ignored them. But I guess the thing that I've learned, and I am getting a bit long in the tooth now, it's that the things that we regret are the things that we didn't do. You know, I look back now and I think those, those opportunities, particularly around travel, particularly around um, experiences, opportunities to do things that I'm now no longer capable of doing, I regret not taking those chances. Um, I guess an extension to that is, and this is really quite hard, almost say yes to everything. You know, the, the reason that I've managed to, to do all of the things that, that I do and have got all of my experiences is I'm really good at just saying yes, or is that I'm really bad at saying no. Um, and it's led to all sorts of things. Um, there are there are advantages to being a disabled person. We do get to do things and see things, and we have a perspective that others don't have. So if you ever get to go to Washington, 
But anyway, I know whether you've been to Washington. The disabled tour of the White House is amazing. Because it's all stats. Oh, wow. So to go on the wheelchair tour, they take you into the private bit of the White House and into the elevator that was put in for Roosevelt. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. And the other advantage is you don't need to queue. So you go and collect your ticket in the morning, gives you a time, and then they, then you just go to the front of the queue. Um, and you get out. It's a long story that I enjoy telling. But you get to see bits in the White House that, that are just amazing. If you go to Parliament, we get to see bits in Parliament that people don't get to see. So there are advantages of being a disabled person. Milk them. Use them. I really, really love those examples. Now I'm going to go to Washington and somehow end up in the presidential rooms or the I'm sure you get to see the Oval Office and things, but I just think that that's amazing. And I just also want to say a huge thank you for giving up so much of your time to join me on this podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure um speaking to you. So thank you. I have never spoken about myself so much. So I'm dying to know what it sounds like. I'm, I'm really honoured to um, have been included. Your, your guest list is some of the most powerful, most influential, most effective campaigners and activists around at the moment. And it's, I think you've done an incredible job putting it together. Thank you. And it's an honour to be part of that. Um, I mean, I would highly, highly recommend that everybody listens to every episode. Oh, well, thank you. I, I mean, honestly, why some of the amazing people that I have had either for season one or will for season two, why they've taken my emails is just beyond me. But it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you so much for your really kind compliments and i am so excited to maybe do a part two at at some point i would love that i think it would be really interesting um i know some of the the people that you've interviewed i think three-way conversations could be really interesting and there are some very powerful, very, some terrific people there. Thank you, Emma. It's been an absolute pleasure and a surprise. I didn't realize I would say that much. Oh, well, please, you did. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for listening to this absolutely fascinating episode of The Wheelchair Activist with Alan. I learned so much about how to approach difficult situations that disabled people find themselves in and how to process it 
and really importantly, the history of the disability rights movement. I hope you enjoyed it half as much as I did. Before you go, I want to remind you that we do have a GoFundMe set up for this podcast. We are 100% committed to accessibility here at The Wheelchair Activist, and we want to make sure that every bit of content is inclusive and accessible to all. Every donation allows us to continue doing this work, which includes captioning each and every episode and making it available on YouTube. Thank you so, so much to everyone who has donated so far and has allowed us to continue making this amazing podcast. Please give this podcast a share far and wide so everyone can enjoy the amazing content. This podcast has been hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, produced by me and Isabel Anderson, and edited by Joe Tapper. Thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to see you in the next one.